This is the Green Antlers Waterfowl Podcast. You're listening to Donna McMahon's highly opinionated regional district course. The date is February 27th, 2002. And she's just about to start. We're just kind of queuing up. Getting her slide deck going. <clears throat> I, uh, I've had Donna McMahon as a guest on my podcast previously, and so she's doing really great work. The slide deck is loading up. It says, Okay, now everybody <laughs> should be able to see the PowerPoint presentation. Um, Karen, if you want to try recording, we can give it a try. Uh, you're the only Recording in progress. Wow, look at that. That was exciting. Okay. Oh, now I'm nervous. (laughs) Welcome, everybody. Good afternoon. Welcome to a highly opinionated introduction to regional districts. I am Donna McMahon. I am your opinionated instructor in the strange adventure that is local government in British Columbia. Also with us is Karen Dick from Elder College, who is our host today. Elder College. I'm sorry. I'm really tired here. Pender Harbor and Area Residents Association, otherwise known as FARA. And thank you to FARA for hosting this event. Come on. Area E Director for the Sunshine Coast. There we go. I'm coming to you today from Elphinstone in the territory of the Squamish Nation. The Sunshine Coast Regional District lies in the territories of the Squamish and Seashell Nations. Zoom etiquette today. Um, please uh, stay on mute while I'm presenting. Uh, and uh, if your if your cat's name is the one in the in it, uh, if you named yourself for your cat, it's nice if you use your real name. And uh, if folks are having any bandwidth trouble, uh, turning off the video right now during the presentation helps, and then we can come back up again during the question period. I'm going to ask you to hold questions until the question period at the end, unless it is just such a burning question that you have to share it with us, in which case, please type it into the chat. Uh, And uh, when we do get to questions, use the hands up function. Thank you. We have 58 people registered for this course, so uh, I'm not going to ask you all to introduce yourselves, but if you want to introduce yourselves in the chat and say where you're coming from, that would be kind of cool. And talking of introductions, I know that there are some people uh, on this call who are not local to the Sunshine Coast, so I thought I'd just give you a a bit of an uh, orientation here. This photo was taken from the top of Mount Elphinstone. This here, you can probably see my cursor, that's the town of Gibson's. The town of Gibson's boundary is just that big. It's, It's roughly the same size as Stanley Park. From this point all the way over to the left is area F of the Sunshine Coast Regional District, and then from this point, roughly here, is area E, which is my area. And from the top of Mount Elphinstone, you have, as you can see, a panoramic view over the Salish Sea. That's Keats Island, Bowen Island. This is uh, Point Grey. This is Tawasson. You can see the ferries go back and forth to Schwartz Bay. And Vancouver is over here. Vancouver is, uh, Gibson's is literally in the glow of Vancouver. So, I think I went backwards, did I? Ah, no. This is what we're doing today. So we're doing a bit of orientation. Then I'm getting into the creation story of regional districts. We'll take a break for questions around 2.40. We'll have a five-minute break at 2.55 so that people can whatever they need to do and then we'll start again at three o'clock with our guest speakers and the all-important caveats and disclaimers i am not an expert on regional districts 
I didn't study political science at university, nor have I read all of the legislation regarding local government. My knowledge of regional districts has been picked up as I went, as a voter, as a community volunteer, as a reporter for a local newspaper, and now as an elected director. I will undoubtedly get a few things wrong, but I can certainly deliver on the opinions. And to make my bias really clear, I am an electoral area director, that is that I represent an unincorporated rural area, and that's my focus uh, in this whole discussion. So as we get started here, I'm going to do my best to pretend that we've all just arrived from a lifetime of herding penguins in Antarctica, and we know nothing at all about local government in BC. So we'll try to get going on that basis. Whoops. So here we go. How did I get here? I am the last person that I ever expected to run for public office. I'm not an extrovert. In high school, I was a library monitor. You can read about me on my website, by the way. My website is everythingelfenstone.ca. I moved to the Sunshine Coast in 1997 from an urban area, and as I got more involved in the community and more aware of local politics, I became concerned about the decisions that were being made, who was being making them, and how they were being made. It was particularly discouraging to me that in 2017, the SCRD board was entirely men. It was, as they like to say, pale, stale, and male. I spent years encouraging other women to run for office, and I could never get anybody to do it, so I eventually decided that I had to put my money where my mouth was and run myself. And I'll tell you how much money was involved uh, when we get to that part of the course. <laughs> so I was elected in 2018. There was a complete turnover at the SCRD board in the rural areas at that time. I was the only person who ran against an incumbent. Uh, and, uh, and so a new chapter started, I guess you could say. Come on, you silly thing. forward for me. So, here we go. With, I, when I moved to the Sunshine Coast, the a first time a story. local election rolled around, I remember being completely perplexed by being asked to vote for an Area E director. Like, what the heck was that supposed to be? So, let's go back a bit and, and look at local government in the province. Uh, the first thing to know about it is that it wasn't planned. It hasn't evolved and been added on to like a wonky old house in fits and starts, and it's not necessarily logical or consistent. However, uh, the regional districts were a very deliberate creation. Local governments in every province in this in this country are created by the province. And by the way, whoever's not muted, could you please mute? Because you're clicking. So, uh, Karen, can you mute folks? So, the province creates... I'm going to read this slide. Those who are elected to them, I think they're sorting themselves out now. <clears throat> I don't know you mute the two. So. Sorry. There you go. Better. That's better. Yeah. Okay. Thanks for mentioning it. Um, the province creates the legislation under which we operate. In rare cases, they will step in uh, to overrule decisions of municipalities and other local governments. The laws defining the powers of the municipalities, in BC it's the local government and the community charter, are different in each province. So municipalities may look the same, but actually they operate un under subtly different rules. The governance of rural areas outside of municipalities is where things get really interesting because it's handled differently everywhere in Canada. Um, a dog's breakfast is the way that I would describe it. Um, and a 
across North America generally too, uh, is also true in the states. The closest analogy there is elsewhere in Canada to regional districts is uh, the county system in southern Ontario, but it is not the same as what we have here. Uh, there was a news story in February of last year that uh, Ontario was being recommended to take action to reorganize local governments in the north using a model already in use in British Columbia. And interestingly, Brunswick has taken the bull by the horns and is reorganizing all the local governments in the province, amalgamating uh, a bunch of small municipalities, expanding, uh, uh, doing boundary expansions for others, and creating rural districts that sound hauntingly like our regional districts. And more about that later in this course. This, I find really, really interesting. This is the big picture across Canada for what local government looks like. Um, I'm sorry, this is about 10 years old, but it's still, I don't, I don't think it's changed very much. So 19% of the population of Canada lives outside of incorporated areas in general, roughly. Uh, that's 7 million people. Um, many of them have no local representation at all, which is very interesting. The other thing that, that's dead interesting to me is how many municipalities there are. Um, BC and Ontario are the most urban areas in Canada. But if you look at just like Alberta and BC are very similar in population, but look at the number of local governments. Alberta mm -hmm. has nearly twice as many local governments as we do, mm -hmm. which is which is intriguing. Mm -hmm. And then Saskatchewan, holy maloli, Saskatchewan has 782 municipalities for a population of about 1.1 million people. Mm. Uh, if you um, if you subtract Regina and Saskatoon, which between the two of them hold most of the people. 40 percent of the population of the mm -hmm, province mm -hmm. they have one municipality for every 900 people in saskatchewan and since some of them are outside municipal boundaries sure, that would sure. be even less than that that's pretty crazy um another interesting thing about the census is they'll often talk about how much of canada lives in urban areas but mm -hmm. their definition of urban is, is pretty curious. I think it was probably created in 1865. So urban in, in the census, uh, in census terms, means anything over a thousand people. So what that means is that the census considers the cusp, a hundred mile house, Euclid, Lillooet, and Telqua to be urban. Little, little um, boggling. So I love this graphic. Um, I know it's accurate because I got it off Facebook, um, but it it tells us uh, something about BC in 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 a nutshell. Uh, the made in BC solution to uh, to a bunch of problems was the creation of uh, in 1965, and this was not incidentally a grassroots movement. This was a top-down solution uh, delivered by policy wonks. Um, but there were three goals for creating regional districts. So a political forum bringing various governments in an area to the same table to discuss shared issues, such as regional planning. It's a platform tax for and deliver regional services like drinking water and garbage being common ones and it's local governance for unincorporated rural areas and that is the part that I'm going to be coming back to quite a bit because this is one of the areas that concerns me. The reality of BC is driven by our population distribution. The yellow color there is one-third of the population of BC, the red color is one-third of the population of BC, and the blue is one-third of the population of BC. <laughs> That's a good picture. That says it in a nutshell. It sure does. Uh, 
it drives everything about the politics around here. Uh, three if stages. Canada is often said to be a strip within 100 kilometers of the border, well, BC is just this little lower left-hand corner. <laughs> you could also look at it that the blue part of the province is mostly the resource-based hinterland that delivers the wealth to the lower left-hand corner. <laughs>
resistant. Squamish Lillooet Regional District is at the highest risk for almost every major natural disaster that we have except tornadoes. They are on a floodplain of the Squamish River. They are near a major tectonic fault. They're in a volcano zone. Black, Black Tusk is a, is a old volcano. They have steep slopes with high risk of landslide and avalanche. And they have a major uh, forest fire risk, especially around Whistler. Now, having said that, you could say that for just about the rest of BC too. Uh, <laughs> we are not putting the people in sensible areas. Our, this is about local government, not about common sense. So, 27 regional districts in terms of area, totally different picture. You see all the big regional districts are up north. and. And uh, uh, the little green slice is Metro Vancouver, and the red slice is the Sunshine Coast. And even when you look at similar size regional districts, say in terms of population, like Peace River and Comox Valley, similar population, but totally different in terms of area. So, you know, Comox Valley has got 42.6 people per square kilometer, and Peace River has half a person per square kilometer. How they do that? Who knows? So, all these regional districts have evolved to make meet different needs, and I will come back to that. So, most regional districts are predominantly municipal in terms of where the population lives, and that makes sense. Um, this is chart shows you uh, the, the rural population of each of the rural dist uh, regional districts. So. Central Coast Regional District is 100% rural. There are no incorporated municipalities there. And then it goes down from there. So only three regional districts have over 50% of their population living in unincorporated areas. The Sunshine Coast is 49%, by the way. But even uh, neighbors around here that we think are comparable in some ways, like Quebec, which is Powell River, and Nanaimo, and Squamish Lillooet, are different when you start looking at the way things uh, add up. There are just over 400 directors of rural regional districts in BC. Of them, 247 are municipal and 159 are rural, which is about 40%. So, regional district services. We have core services that we are required to deliver. Solid waste planning is in our case is a landfill but it might be shipping garbage but even if you don't pick it up curbside which lots of areas don't have curbside collection you are responsible for planning and doing something with all that waste emergency planning rural planning and of course the administration of elections are our core services curiously water supply is not a core service um we could we could uh speculate on sort of why that is uh but common services include garbage collection, water supply, sewers or septic systems, parks, fire protection, and transit. Less commonly, it, the thing about regional districts is that if taxpayers approve it, you can add almost any service. So other services that are often offered, recreation centers, we, we do that here. Ports, docks, and marinas, economic development, airports, affordable housing, I believe that's Comox Valley is doing that right now, drainage, weed control, street lighting, cemeteries, <laughs> we have cemeteries, tourism, and high-speed internet. I'm not sure which regional district does that, but uh, I think it's Mount Waddington, actually. And I just wanted to mention again that each regional district is unique, and that's because BC has an enormously varied landscape. If you just look at these four photos, in the upper left, we're looking at Revelstoke. In the mountains, it's, it's known for ski tourism and forestry. That's the Columbia Shushwak Regional District. And then to the right of it is a soyuz, which is in a desert, inland desert, known for its fruit, wine, golf, and tourists. That's in the Okanagan Smokami Regional District. Lower left, that's Dawson Creek, the northern prairies. They have oil and gas, mining, agriculture, and forestry. Very much resource community. 
And then in the lower right, that's Bella Bella. Bella Bella is a First Nations uh, settlement and it has no road access. Um, it's reliant on fishing and forestry, and that's the Central Coast Regional District. So the services that each regional district okay. operates are according to the priorities of the population. Yeah. Central Coast has only 3,300 people in their regional district, but they run two airports because those are essential transportation links for that part of the coast. Mm -hmm. The SCRD operates nine wharves because we have a bunch of islands. So each one is different. Mm -hmm. Nine wharves. So That's how do regional districts run? They are a mix of elected and appointed representatives, which is which is kind of unique. So for the rural unincorporated areas, you elect a director. So I was elected by the residents of Area E to serve a four-year term representing Area E. The municipal directors, on the other hand, are appointed. They are people who have been elected to their local government, and then they are appointed to the regional district board. And the appointments are actually for one year, and sometimes uh, uh, municipalities will change them up every year or whenever they feel like it, or sometimes they'll leave the same person in there for four years. The municipal directors fill two roles. So they are both a municipal councillor and a regional district director, and they, they are paid by both governments. And then there is the chair. The chair is not elected. The chair is chosen internally by the board in a vote. And that's substantially different than municipalities. So how many directors do we have that are rural versus urban? So I, I crunched that one out. Hmm. Um, these are the seats at the tables of all the regional districts. There are, as I said before, 247 municipal directors and 159 electoral area or rural directors. Um, in the green, you can see Metro Vancouver there. There is one rural director. She is the yeah. director of Area A, which is kind Maybe of everything so. left over from the whole rest of Metro Vancouver. Um, the size of the boards varies pretty wildly from five people in the Central Coast Regional District up to the 40 at Metro Vancouver. And some of them, in my view, and I'll be interested to hear from our guests today, are pretty darn cumbersome. Thompson Nicola Regional District has 26 directors at the table. Central Kootenai has 20, and Okanagan and Samokameen has 19. That is a lot. Um, what I did not include on this chart is First Nations. There are an increasing number of First Nations also represented at regional district tables, but at the time the legislation was set up, that hadn't been envisioned, and they, the relationship between the First Nations and the other levels of government is hugely complicated and ever-evolving. So another characteristic of regional districts is alternate directors. So after I was elected, I am required to choose an alternate director who can vote for me if I'm absent. Um, this is not an elected person, this is somebody I pick. Not only that, there is no automatic provision for by-election. If I get hit by a bus tomorrow and I can't attend the rest of the meetings and my alternate steps in, she could do that for four years. There's no actual requirement for by-election in the legislation. Unless, you know, if I was nice and I resigned, um, then you could have a by-election. But there have been some um, sagas across BC. Uh, in fact, the whole question of alternates um, came before the Union of BC Municipalities several times, and in 2018 they wrote a policy paper. And the recommendation of that paper was uncertainty regarding the long-term powers, privileges, and expected conduct of an unelected alternate electoral area director can create governance challenges for staff and other board members. I'd say that's an understatement. Um, <laughs> municipalities also have uh, alternates, but they're just other members of council, so they're already elected. 
Uh, anyway, uh, and that was, I think Camilla's on this call today, but that's Camilla, and she's the alternate for Area F, which is why I put that meeting photo in there. My alternate is Lucy McKernan. Rocks. Uh, more peculiarities. So, uh, regional districts have, as long as the taxpayers approve, the addition of a new service, which requires a bylaw, we can add it. And that's why there is such a wide variety of services offered by different regional districts. They can be very small, uh, like street lighting for, for a street in my area. I think there's, I don't know, a dozen people who are taxed for the street lighting on that street. Or they can be very, very large, like our regional water system is, is large. Um, budget silos uh, is is one of the banes of my existence. I gotta say, it's it's is also known as the segregation of funds. So each service is accounted for separately, and we cannot move money around. So if, for instance, say during COVID, we had ended up with a big surplus in recreation and a deficit in emergency services, we cannot transfer the money between those two different uh, areas. And on top of that, we can't move money between operating and capital. We have reserves for both operating and capital. They are separate. Um, that's quite interesting. Another thing that's, that's unique to regional districts is waiting, weighted voting. So at regular meetings, it's one vote per director. But when we vote about money, which is like the budget, where which is where the rubber hits the road, then we are we have weighted votes by population. And That's the so gay. letters patent I mean, of each regional district lays out weighted what votes. the weighted votes are, like how many population you have to have top. per weighted vote, and also how many population you have for seats at the table. I'm going to come back to that in a minute. Ugh. Talking of seats at the table, this is the distribution. So, rural areas have more seats at the tables relative to our population. So, in 10 regional districts, rural directors make up at least half of the elected directors at the table. But, if we go over to our financial votes, then that's different. So if you look at Couch Valley Regional District, they have nine electoral area directors and six municipal directors. The nine rural directors have a total of 25 weighted votes, and the six municipal directors have a total of 24 weighted votes, which bad. I imagine makes it important that everybody goes to a, to a <clears throat> vote on the budget. And if you look here at another example, this is uh, Columbia Shushwap Regional District. So they have six electoral areas with 12 votes and four municipalities that have 15 votes. And so the balance on every regional district is really important. And just in my personal opinion, and we'll, we'll get to a lot more of this later, if you have a big um, disproportion of, of kind of power on the board between electoral areas and municipalities, it, it can get very fraught. If if it's if it's close, then I I think perhaps people have to get along better. But we'll we'll see what uh, <laughs> we'll see what our guests think. About oh, I love the way you put things. Here's the weighted voting at the Sunshine Coast Regional District right now. So we have three municipalities. The town of Gibson's, the district of Seashell, and the Seashell Indian Government District, which I'll get back to in a minute. So Gibson's has three votes, Seashell has six, and SIGD has one. The rural areas, and this is one vote for 2,000 people, we each, each of us, each of the five rural areas have two votes. So it's 10 votes to 10 votes which uh, uh, has, has the uh, possibility for some real amusement, although we haven't had any, you know, knockdown, drag-out uh, budget fights so far. So uh, 
I'm not sure what we were voting on at that meeting, by the way. I just grabbed it off the Coast Reporter website. Um, the SIGD, the Population, was created under uh, federal and provincial legislation in 1986, and they are a municipality. They are unique. They are the only uh, First Nation in D.C. that is a municipality yeah. as well as being a First Nation, mm. and that's how they ended up with a seat at the SCRD board. Seychelles Indian Government District. So, differences between regional districts and municipalities, and um, I'm going to have to move a bit because I'm running behind. Sorry about that. So, municipalities can approve. They, they approve subdivisions. Regional districts do not. It's, our approvals are done by the Ministry of Transportation and Infrastructure. They can move money around. They handle roads and transportation planning and parking. They can enact tree cutting bylaws, which we cannot, and they have business licenses, which we do not. And when you live in a municipality, you vote for a whole, all the councillors and the mayor, which if you live in a rural area and like the SCRD, you only get to vote for one electoral area director. So just to talk a little bit for a minute about how we fit in to all the other jurisdictions, of course, there's the federal government way up there, and there's a the provincial government. There's the First Nations, which are in, um, in flux right now in terms of how they fit into this entire picture. Uh, there are 198 First Nations in BC, and they all have different statuses too. Like some of them have treaties and some don't. Some are negotiating treaties and others aren't, and it's complicated. Um, other things that you may know about, improvement districts are like my favorite. They, they are the grassroots of government in BC. They started in 1920, uh, and any group of people who wanted to get together, a bunch of taxpayers, and form an improvement district to deliver a service could do it. So that's like uh, often a fire firefighting or uh, delivery of water, um, water, waterworks, and there's about 200 improvement districts um, in BC. The, uh, they're gradually going away because the province does really like them um, and because they're having difficulty operating in, in uh, current environments of, of um, uh, sorry, regulation. It, it's, more, it's harder and harder to deliver drinking water to people. Um, so we have school districts. You all know about voting for school trustees. There's regional hospital districts, which are tied in with uh, uh, regional districts, and those are created for the sole purpose of capital funding for hospitals. And um, then there's the Islands Trust, was established in 1974, and the SCRD has several islands that are in the trust, including Gambier and Keats. And then there's the Agricultural Land Reserve, uh, which is established in 1973, and that's a whole separate uh, level of regulation on land use planning that applies to us. Some of the other organizations, and I'll send you the uh, PDFs of this later on so that you can catch up with it later, but uh, municipalities get together at the Federation of Canadian Municipalities to advocate for uh, things that we want, and in each province has its own version, Union of BC Municipalities in BC, and then UBCM has five regional subgroups, and the SCRD belongs to the Vancouver Island and Coastal Communities group. Ooh. We have some other cool organizations in BC, the Municipal Finance Authority, which was formed in 1970, creates it, it collective borrowing for municipalities in the sea. And that's that's unique in Canada. So we have access to really good finance. We also have the Municipal Insurance Association. And somebody is unmuted again. It's perfect. Um, that was formed in nineteen eighty seven by hundred and forty four local governments couldn't get good insurance coverage. So we came together and we formed an insurance group to ensure our assets, and it provides us really good rates and really good service. 
and the local government leadership academy provides training to elected officials on our roles and things we need to do. So I'm just going to talk briefly, and Karen, if you can figure out to uh, unmuted, that would be great. Um, the local government act and the community charter set out the basics of uh, the rules for local government. Uh, for everybody except Vancouver, which has its own city charter, and it's the What is not legislated is more interesting. So all the local governments can be pretty much follow Robert's rules of order. Um, Robert's rules, and, and this is not legislated, it's, it's pretty much in everybody's bylaws. Robert's rules were invented by a guy named Robert in 1876, and they they have pros and cons, but they are a good, efficient way to get through a meeting. They're not so much a good way to have conversations or invite public input because they are very much uh, geared towards taking a vote, making a decision, and moving on. Uh, the policies for each local government are determined in our bylaws, and I will tell you right now. That's where the, the devil is in the details. Still hear me? Okay. Uh, the devil is in the details and the procedures bylaw is where that is. The procedures bylaw includes things like times and locations of meetings, how the chair is elected, uh, for instance, whether it's secret ballot or show of hands, uh, setting of the agenda, who sets the agenda, uh, very key question conduct of directors and staff in meetings, wording about notion, motions, who can make motions, etc. The procedures, for instance, Cathet Regional District right now has a procedure that says that any director can only speak so many times to a motion. Mm. And that's a really interesting one to me. Um, mm. I would be very upset if that were the case in my regional district. So. Uh, and then we have a million policies. We have policies on how to lay a wreath, uh, how to <laughs> name a recreation facility room. And we actually have a policy on the annual limit of beer garden approvals. That's my favorite. Because the policy <laughs> is that we choose not to establish a limit and deal with requests on a case-by-case -case basis. So why do we have that, that policy? So, and if we had no policy, Anyway, it would be um, no different. The other thing <laughs> that I want to get into is the Carver model, because this is the model that pretty much every government and nonprofit in BC operates under. It became very popular in the 1970s across North America, and it's also known as the one employee model. And the rule is that the board has only one employee. The chief administrative yeah. officer or the CEO and the board is responsible for policy and the staff that handles operations. So we hire and fire the CAO, but we do not hire and fire anybody else and we don't direct anybody else, we direct the CAO. The Carver model is a really interesting one. There are obvious advantages to it. it, it differentiates between governance and management and between policy and operations. It empowers the chief officer to get the job done without a lot of micromanaging on the part of directors. It keeps the board's governance at arm's length from operation and it focuses the board on the big picture rather than getting into the weeds, which is always a temptation. The downside of Carver model legal obligations is that the limited role for directors may not reflect our legal obligations under the law. And that's important. That's very interesting. It's developed in the U.S. and it's used in Canada. And the legal obligations of governments in Canada may be different. Mm, I would say. Also, the public expects a degree of oversight uh, of an organization on the, on the part of their elected representatives. And that's not reflected in Carver. 
The information flow in the organization is controlled by the CAO. The CAO is the person who talks to the board and talks to the staff. The board does not talk directly to the staff. That, that is, you know, always a temptation for abuse. I will tell you because I've actually been an executive director. Delegation can become abdication, and and the word I would, the term I would use here is plausible deniability. It's really easy to use this as an excuse not to know what is going on in your organization. And finally, uh, a real crunch point I think for a lot of organizations is that we are responsible as the board for our chief executive officer's performance, but we don't supervise that person. So it becomes very difficult to, uh, for instance, do a performance review. So I'm just going to mention briefly, there's a lot of great information out there on regional districts. Uh, BC government website is a good starting place. Union BC municipalities has fact sheets, a toolkit, a bunch of stuff. Civic Info BC, great website, so lots of stuff. And finally, if you if you are a data geek, IMAPS BC. IMAPS BC is it. They, they, it's got layers and layers. You gotta learn it, but man, there is so much information available there. Oh, and I should have added BC assessment. They have some great information too. So there is uh, a lot of stuff out there if you want to dig deeper. Whoops, we're not at coffee break yet. What I'm gonna do though is stop sharing because it's question time. And Karen, if you want to stop the recording too, and then we can just jump into questions. Use the hands up if you've got a question. I've just dumped a lot. Recording stopped. Awesome. Thank you. And 
is C. Alexander. Hi there. That's Christine. Hi. I was wondering if you could explain a little bit more about budgetary silos, how those are created. <laughs> oh, boy. Well, okay. If we tax you for water, we can only spend that money on, on water. water. Mm -hmm. that, that is basically the bottom line. We do have, um, you know, we have big uh, um, services like regional water in, in, in the RD that have maybe 28,000 people involved in them. And then there's little services, like if you're on a, a small sewage treatment plant, only the people who use that service pay for it. Uh, and it, it sounds ideal in a way, but I mean, honest to God, when I think about the amount of staff time that goes into keeping track of the street lighting away, yeah. on one street in my area, and the entire budget for the year is like $200, and I'm sure that we use up $2,000 of staff time just keeping track of <laughs> everything that happens. Yeah, that's pretty absurd. You got a follow-up? I do. Um, is it the uh, the province then that requires you to have budgetary silos for every tax item? Yeah, it's required. Regional districts must operate that way. We've got no choice about it. And this is this is um, touted as one of the advantages in the system, which uh, <laughs> I would happily argue about. Accountants love it. Oh my God, accountants just uh, they're like, oh we. Typically, 
only the rural areas vote on planning issues because the planning service is just for the rural areas. So there's just the five rural directors voting on that. When the same recommendation comes back to the board, then the whole board is voting on it. And it's entirely possible for something to go through committee and be defeated at the board. We haven't had that happen recently in our regional district, but I'll bet you that it happens elsewhere. And I, I see Sally's hand is up, so I think she's got some expertise on this. Yeah. Um, our solid waste management is for the entire regional district. Our plan is for the entire regional district, except for Kamloops. Now, hmm. Kamloops has six directors on our board. In a weighted vote, they can actually outvote the entire board. But uh, for solid waste management services, they get to vote on it. And when questioned, it's because they have shared liability mm. with the TNRD. So their inclusion in our liability gives them the and right the to vote on vote. our solid waste management. It doesn't really work for me, but um, <laughs> that's the answer I get. That's an interesting one, and I'll pursue you, with, pursue you about that some, some other time, because I'm interested. Steve? How's things at Caribou? Well, um, uh, I'm dealing with, unfortunately, that thing you talked about earlier about subdivision in rural areas. Um, I've got irate people right now because, of course, water is a cont uh, contentious issue and Modi can uh, basically ignore us. Um, speaking of votes, I just want to say, um, and I think it was referenced in the um, presentation, and thank you, Donna, for that. Uh, we have 12 area directors and four municipal directors. Um, now, logic would suggest that area directors, if they feel passionate enough, they'll just gang up against our four municipal directors. But I will say um, on some issues, even municipal directors will go over, um, and we sometimes call it the dark side, by joining municipal directors and, and vote with them. So it, it really depends on how passionate the area director is doing about an issue. And I will also say for our land use planning, um, none of our municipal directors are involved. We used to have two of our four municipalities involved, but they have since withdrew. So it's just the rural directors who voted the board table. And um, the question around voting quickly is, um, if it ends up being a tie, which never happens at a regional district, but I know your RD is a little different. Balanced, yeah. Then if it's the quality of votes and the one director who can break the tie is not there, then uh, virtually you'd have to bring it back next meeting and hope everybody shows up. So it can be problematic if, if votes are very close. Um, but the more northern uh, RDs uh, don't tend to have that issue. Yeah, that's interesting. And we have extremely good attendance at our regional district. So, yeah. Len, I'm going to let you have the last question, then we're going to take a short break. Uh, thank you, Donna. I just wanted to uh, mention that the Pender Harbor Fire Department is actually an improvement district. Uh, they're not controlled by the SCRD. And uh, they're run by a, an elected board of directors who actually have the power to tax and it shows up separately on our uh, property taxes. So I just wanted to make sure that we were clear on that one. Great. I had, I had heard about that, but I forgot. So, okay, let's take a short break. We'll be back at, let's say, 4.05, and then we'll, we'll have a conversation. <laughs> Thank you, Donna. So good. I always learn a lot whenever I listen to Donna talk. And so I'm super uh, psyched to be in her class. This is my second time in her class. I was only in her class for the um, one that I was talking in as a guest uh, last time. But uh, this time I'm just a regular student with the rest of us and sort of in the cheap seats peanut gallery listening in and learning a lot about 
the balance. I went to my first regional district meeting this past week for our mayor as I'm the alternate director. And getting a bigger sense of how the village of Tassis works in respect to the bigger Strathcona Regional District was pretty um, informative. Thank you.